good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for being here to worship God with us today. We had such a great time of worship this morning, and now we get to just keep it going by diving into God's Word. Uh, we are launching into a new series today on the book of Acts, and it's going to take us a long time to get through, so buckle up. I am so excited about this series, and we're going to learn so much from it. Today is going to kind of be an overview message to get us into it a little bit, and, uh, and I, I can't wait. So, so why wait? We're going to start with a question and the question that I want you to think about right now is where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What is next for us? After a major life event, after something big in your life, you often find yourself asking this question, what's next? Where do we go from here? Maybe you've graduated from high school, you've graduated from college, or you've just got a new job, or you've just lost your job, or you've lost a loved one, or you've just gotten married, and, and all, everything's different now. And you're just wondering, where do we go from here? What is the next step? I would like a plan. I would like to know exactly what's going to happen a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Where do we go from here? And this is the status that the disciples were in following the death of Jesus and then even after the resurrection of Jesus. Where do we go from here? What is next for us and for this movement and, and for Jesus? And what is he going to do now that he's conquered death? Where do we go from here? And that's what this series is, is really going to be all about. Luke leaves off the end of his gospel at this point where Jesus has just come back from the dead and he's teaching his disciples for 40 days. He's giving them lots of information and they are wondering in this time, like, what is he gonna do next? He just conquered death. What is next? Where do we go from here? What's gonna happen now? And we're gonna explore what happens now. We're gonna see what happens with the book of Acts. And, and Acts is such an incredible book because it's actually impossible to fully understand the rest of the New Testament without Acts. Acts is sort of the glue that helps us to piece it all together. All these epistles that come later give us instructions to these churches, but how did those churches get there? And why are they set up the way they are? And the, the problems that they have, the challenges that they have, the locations they are, the timeline of all these different places, it all comes together in the book of Acts. It's so important. Now, just to give you a heads up, this series will take well over a year to complete, maybe, maybe two solid years. I don't even, I don't even know yet because some of that is still a little bit flexible. So we're going to consider Acts to be a mega series. And it's a mega series because it's going to be made up of smaller series. And you just saw the first part of the first series in that video, a new foundation. That's what the first few chapters of Acts are all about. There's something new happening here. God is building something new. What is he building? What does it look like for, for that church to start to develop? This is a new foundation, not the old temple, but something new. And that's what we're going to learn about in this series. Let me go back to the Old Testament briefly and just sort of give you some of the background of what God was doing, because this is not some spontaneous thing that God all of a sudden decided to do. This is something he had been working toward all along. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 31, this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see, God's plan was never to leave things as they were, where people were coming to meet with God at the temple. He, and, and learning about God from the Torah, he wanted his instruction to be within them, to live within them. He was going to do something new. Jeremiah's audience couldn't imagine what that would look like. Nor could Isaiah. As Isaiah wrote in, in chapter 43, I am about to do something new. This is God speaking. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? 
I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. A few chapters later, part of the same dialogue. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God. There is no other. Notice that all the world, not just Israel, let all the world look to me for salvation. A few chapters later, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. So something is coming. Something is happening. Salvation is going to come. And it's not just going to be for Israel. It's going to be a light to all the Gentiles. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. A few chapters later, my mercy and my justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations, all distant lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. Two chapters later, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Who is he talking about here? We can interact. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And we know that now, looking back, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He loses his life, yet he has many descendants. How does that make sense? Well, we now know they didn't back then. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. They didn't know what that looked like back then. They didn't understand how that would be fulfilled. And yet we can look back and see, well, this is amazing. This all points to Jesus. In fact, Jesus at one point, talked with a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus and showed them how everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. And Jesus picks up on this theme and describes things to his disciples, some of which we have recorded for us. Some of us will have to wait for heaven to understand what exactly he said. But there's one thing he told them he was going to do. He said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will build my church. God was doing something new. He was doing it through the salvation that was coming, the righteous one that would bear the sins and be able to count many as righteous. And Paul later says in 1 Corinthians, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Here's what's happening. This is just a big picture overview. God's plan all along was not to interact with people exclusively through a temple structure. God had established the tabernacle, the big tent where he would meet with the children of Israel as they were traveling around in the wilderness. And they were all kind of together as they traveled. And then they got to their location in Jerusalem. And David has this idea, hey, I'm in this beautiful palace. God's in a tent. God, how about I build you a beautiful temple for you, a physical structure that's grand and, and appropriate for you and all of your glory. And God says, that's an honoring suggestion. That's a great idea. You can't do it because you have so much blood on your hands. You're such a warrior, but your son, he can do it. And so Solomon builds this incredible temple. Notice that actually the temple structure was not initially God's idea per se. It was David who approached God and said, I want to build you this grand temple. And God said, that's an honoring request. Yes, you, your son can do that. But God's plan all along was never for his primary interaction with us to be in a building, in a structure. That's why we say many times, this is not the church. This is the church. This is the church at home. Uh, you know, if you're sick or traveling, you are still part of the church, even if you're not in the building that we often call church. That was God's plan. You are the temple. You are the building. You are the structure. You are the result of that new foundation that was being laid in the book of Acts that we, that we read about. And that's what we get to study, which is so exciting. 
I want to give you a bit of an overview of Acts and tell you kind of what you can expect from Acts and, and help you to understand the book more before we dive into all of the content. So, so today we'll be light on the verses in Acts. We'll study a few of them, but we'll be heavy on the overview just to set us up for the next several months as we go through this together. First of all, let's talk about the author. The author of Acts is Luke. And we know this with incredible certainty. The only thing that is lacking is that the name of the author doesn't appear in the actual text itself. Some of the books of the Bible tell us who wrote them right in the text. This one, it must have been you know, on the envelope and the envelope was lost. We don't know, you know why the name isn't actually in the letter itself. It, maybe it was on an accompanying a paper that went with it or whatever. But we can know with fair, fairly good certainty that Luke was the author for a number of reasons. I'll just share a few of them. Number one, um, all of the early Christians believed in their writings that Luke was the author of Acts. So we have that. Number two, the gospel of Luke, which was also universally attributed to Luke, has an extremely similar writing style. I mean, it's, it's the same well-educated Koine Greek. Acts includes a lot of first-person accounts of Paul's missionary journeys. And, and one person who was with Paul frequently on his journeys, almost all the time, and in some cases was the only person with Paul, was Luke. Paul tells us in Colossians that Luke was traveling with him, that he was a beloved doctor. So a well-educated man, it would make sense for him to write in great Greek in Luke and Acts. And then in First Timothy or Second Timothy, one of the, the letters to Timothy, Paul says that only Luke was with him when he was imprisoned. And so we know that Luke was very close to Paul, would have had firsthand account of the things that are written down in the book of Acts. More than that, both Luke and Acts are addressed to the same individual. And in fact, Acts starts off saying, remember that other book that I wrote to you? Well, I've got a, I've got a follow-up to that. There's a part two to this series. So the two are very tied together. We know with great certainty that Luke is the author of Acts. So let's talk about the recipient. The man these were written to is named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means friend of God. And it could be just a phrase used as a generic sort of title for a person, but not the actual name, or it could be the name of a person. In this case, I think it's probably the name of a person because if you look at the gospel of Luke, uh, Luke writes to Theophilus saying, most excellent Theophilus, which means he was probably an official and most excellent was a referring, referring to some kind of official in the government or some organization, and Theophilus was probably his name. So this is probably an actual person. But we don't know much about Theophilus. We don't even know why exactly Luke felt the need to write him these two volumes, although we're very thankful for it because we get to be the beneficiary of it today. Maybe Theophilus wrote to Luke and said, hey, I know you were involved and, and you heard all these stories uh, from the apostles and maybe from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and you've spent all this time with Paul. Can you like give me a summary? Because I'd like to hear all of this. I, I don't know. But for some reason, Luke decided I'm going to write this, this two-part series all about the life of Jesus and then all about the apostles and what followed that. And so Theophilus is the beneficiary of that. Acts was probably written around 65 AD, between 60 and 70 AD, most likely. And the reason we think that is because the book of Acts ends kind of abruptly with events that take place in the 60s AD. So it's likely that that's when it was written and it doesn't include things that happened after that. That's sort of an overview of Acts. Now I want to tell you what you can expect from this series because it's important that we enter this study the right way. 
Many people have gotten the wrong impression or pulled some of the wrong beliefs out of the Bible because they didn't approach their study of it with a, a good understanding of some biblical principles and what they could expect to glean and what they, they couldn't. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go. But the first thing that we can expect is that we will learn insights from the descriptions of the early church. And I've worded that very carefully. We can expect that we will learn insights from the description of the early church. Acts very clearly was written to communicate both theology, which it does typically through the dialogues of people who are being written about, and especially history. Here's what happened, Theophilus. I want you to understand how these events transpired. How do we get from where we were to where we are today? It's mostly history with a lot of theology woven in there. It is not instruction. Acts is not a book primarily of instruction. The epistles are. The epistles contain all sorts of imperatives, commands for the believers. Do this, don't do this. Acts is not written that way. Acts describes what happened, not necessarily what should always happen. That is a very important distinction when you approach studying a book. Because you can read a book of the Bible, and if you don't understand the genre and what its purpose was, you can read into that, well, I'm supposed to do things exactly like they did. And there are actually people today who read the book of Acts and think, well, everything they did is what we're supposed to do. It's funny, no one seems to do that much with the book of Leviticus. But with Acts, they might go, but it's history. It's describing the way things were done at a certain point in time. And nowhere does the book say, this is the way it's always supposed to be done. So we can learn insights from the description of the early church. We have to be very careful not to pull that out and think, well, this is normative for us for all time. That's a very important part of Bible study. There's a principle we can use to remember this, which is very simple. You've heard me say it before. It's descriptive versus prescriptive. Everybody say descriptive. Now say prescriptive. Here's the difference, and you've figured it out already. Descriptive describes something that happened. Prescriptive is pre prescription like a doctor would give you. You need to do this. So is this a description of what happened or is this a prescription of what you are supposed to do? And there is a difference in scripture. There are all sorts of examples of this throughout scripture that we can look at and say, that is what happened. That's not necessarily what I'm supposed to follow or copy. There are elements of David's life that you can look at and find incredible inspiration. And there are elements that you better not follow because it's description, not Prescription. There are things that happened in the early church in the book of Acts that we are going to learn about together that were probably specific for that time and place. Some things that, that maybe were more normative for them that aren't necessarily as normative for us now. And that doesn't mean that it's not there at all today. It just means that our circumstances are different. Our situation is different. At the time of the book of Acts, the gospel was new. It was fresh. It had just happened. It was such a, a fresh and new, exciting thing that it was, it was shocking to people. It was so different. And how do you get people to switch from believing something they believe their whole lives and every generation of their ancestors has believed for hundreds of years and get them to abandon that to switch to this gospel message? Well, you better come bring in something amazing. That's exactly what happened. So I want to use that as an example for you. We don't talk about miraculous gifts a lot here at First Free, and I'll tell you why. There's a very good reason for that. It's because the EFCA, the association we're a part of, and this church in particular, does not pick a side on miraculous gifts. That's not to say that I don't have my own views on that, but we have different views represented in this room right now on miraculous gifts, and we think that's okay. We would consider that to be a secondary issue. We talk about the buckets of belief here. We'd put that in the conviction bucket. It's not a doctrinal thing for us, and it's certainly not a dogma where we would say you have to believe what we believe about miraculous gifts in order to be a Christian. 
We don't say that. We allow for a variety of views on miraculous gifts. But I do want to use miraculous gifts as an illustration to show you how something like that might change from the course of Acts through the early epistles and then the later epistles. Let me give you an example. And I'm not trying to make a, a theological positional statement here. Um, I'm just trying to show you an example of how this might change over time from what you see as normative in Acts to what you see talked about later in the epistles. Here's the example. In Acts, specifically Acts 2, 10, and 19, you have examples of the miraculous being done to validate and verify the gospel message. This is new. This is incredible. How do we demonstrate its validity? There are, there are incredible, miraculous things that the Holy Spirit does through people to show others this is legit. This is real. So in Acts, miraculous gifts are fairly normative, um, at least from our perspective, reading back into the text. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians. The events of Acts take place between around 33 AD to around 57 AD, most of them, the ones that I'm talking about specifically. Fast forward to the letter to Corinthians. Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians is written around 55 AD, so at the tail end of those events. And Paul at this point, in particular in chapter 14, starts talking about some restrictions for miraculous things. He cautions the use. He restricts them. He, he doesn't want a bunch of people doing it at the same time. He wants order, not chaos. He wants people to not be turned away from the gospel by people's misuse of the gifts. He wants them to have certain parameters in place and restrictions when they use them. That's around 55 AD, 1 Corinthians. Fast forward another 10 years, and we're in 65 AD, around the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, we don't know if it was Paul or Barnabas or maybe someone else, but likely one of those two. The author of the book of Hebrews says, hey, remember how the gospel came to you with, and these three things are mentioned, signs, wonders, and miracles. Remember how the gospel came to you with signs, wonders, and miracles? Don't forget that because I don't want you to drift away. That's the word that's used. I don't want you to drift away from the gospel that you first trusted in that was verified by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, that tells me something very interesting. It tells me that the Hebrew believers were not experiencing signs, wonders, and miracles on a regular basis at this point in 65 AD. They weren't experiencing that because the author of Hebrews had to say, remember how you experienced that? Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. Even though that's not the normal experience now, when the gospel came to you, that's how it was brought to you. Don't drift away from that. That's an interesting progression to me because it tells me that maybe that functioned a little bit differently in Acts, and then it was cautioned and restricted in 1 Corinthians, and then it was talked about in the past tense by the time we get to Hebrews. Am I trying to say that God doesn't use signs, wonders, and miracles today? Not at all. I'm just saying that there are things we will find in the book of Acts that if we're not careful, we might walk away and think, that's what every church ought to look like today. We ought to be just like that. We ought to do things just like them. And we forget the fact this is description, not prescription. This is historical narrative genre, not imperative, not epistle. And so we need to be careful when we read it that we gain the insights and the inspiration without thinking we have to do everything they did the way they did. And, and we'll see this time and again as we walk through Acts, and we'll try to be very careful how we rightly interpret the word of God so that we're pulling out the things that are universal and true without necessarily saying something that happened is what we are supposed to do today. I just think that's very important as we get into the book of Acts. Number two, we can expect to be challenged by the radical selflessness of the early believers. Man, they were amazing. When they came to Jesus and their life was turned upside down, a lot of them just said, I'm going to sell everything I have and give it to the church and let them distribute it to people that have need. And that is awesome. 
And we can be challenged by their radical selfness. They, they valued that freedom in Christ so much, and they valued the gospel that everything else was just worthless to them. Now, that would be tested as time would go on. And not everyone sold everything. There were people who were wealthy individuals who came to Jesus and were very generous people and helped support the church and the people of the church, but continued to be wealthy individuals. So don't get the wrong impression from that and think, well, that's what everyone did, so everyone today should do that. There is a movement today of people who read Acts, and they miss the point I was making a minute ago, and they th it's called uh, neo-monasticism, the idea that we're all supposed to be monks today, and we sell everything we have, and we live like monks, and that's just a misunderstanding of what Acts is all about. Yes, there were people that did that. No, not everyone did that. And God calls some people, God gives some people a spiritual gift of generosity where they just say, all this stuff is worthless to me now. I want to give it all away. Or just, I'm just going to keep just what I need to survive so I can keep living and minister to other people. And hey, there are some people, we saw an example earlier today, who say, I'm going to give up everything I have and the closeness that I have to family and friends and all of the, the materials that I have and the house that I have. And I'm going to go around the world and I'm going to share the gospel with other people. And that is awesome. And God calls some people to do that. And we can be inspired by that radical selflessness that we see in the early believers and in other believers today. Finally, something we can expect. We can expect to be shocked by how the early believers cared about the community more than individual desires. Disagreements, preferences, stigmas, they all faded to the background because the gospel came with a message of unity. And the gospel meant that it was so much more important for us to unite around these things that we believe in that we're for than to divide over these things where we may have some differences. You see that theme carried all throughout the epistles, but you'll also see it take place in the book of Acts, how people of every, every background and culture and language and ethnicity came together and cared for each other and supported each other, even though three months ago they might have considered each other to be enemies. It's an amazing thing. That's the impact that the gospel is supposed to have. You know, the early churches were actually organized citywide. So it's not like you go to Jerusalem, which was a good-sized city for the time, and you find, you know, first, first church of this on this corner and first church of that on this corner and second, third church of that on this other corner. It didn't work that way. You had lots of home groups throughout Jerusalem. You had thousands of people in the church, um, but they all considered themselves part of one church. It was the same in Crete and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Ephesus and Antioch, all these different churches. They considered themselves to be part of one church in that region. They were all part of that church together, but they had their separate groups that met together as well. And, and, and that's just, that's from a different era. You know, over the centuries, we've seen churches kind of form different divisions that are, that are kind of arbitrary and they're mostly around secondary issues. Some of them are, there are places that call themselves churches that aren't true churches, of course, but there are a lot of churches in St. Louis but technically, we're all part of the same church together, even though we might have some different views on secondary issues. And the early church viewed that community as being so much more important than secondary beliefs. And that, that can inspire us and cause us to question, how can we stay united in the gospel, even though we may have some differences of opinions on some things that don't affect whether we're not a true follower of Jesus? How can we disagree with each other? and still get along with each other, and still love each other, and still do all the things the Bible tells us to do as followers of Jesus for each other. Show love to each other. Remember, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you what? Show love for each other. Not show love to unbelievers by how you show love for each other. We can expect to be challenged and shocked by how the early believers valued 
the community of the church over their own desires and their own preferences. It's an amazing thing for us. So now that we've seen kind of the overview, we've talked about what we can expect. Let's dive into the first few verses together. Acts chapter one, if you've got your Bibles with you. Acts chapter one, we'll, we'll cover the first 11 verses. And here's what Luke writes. He says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Man, that's the gospel in a nutshell right there. And then verse three, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul later to the believers in Corinth would say that there were actually 500 people, more than 500 that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and remained eyewitnesses of him. So for decades after Jesus died and rose again, there were hundreds of people who saw him and saw the holes in his hand and knew that he was crucified or saw the crucifixion and then later saw him alive. And so this is what Luke wants to point out here as well, that he appeared to the apostles and proved to them that he was actually alive. And there were actually hundreds of people, not just the apostles, who could validate that this really happened. Verse 4, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the, John, the apostle, wrote about how Jesus had said that he would go away and that he would send this helper, this comforter, to do three things, to convict the world of sin, to guide the apostles into all truth and to continue delivering Jesus' instructions. Whatever the spirit received from Jesus would be passed on to the apostles, Jesus said. And so this comforter, this guide, what we now know is the Holy Spirit would come into the world. In fact, Jesus even said, it's actually better if I go away and send the Holy Spirit to you, which is a confusing thing. Why would it be better for Jesus to leave? You've got to think about it from the perspective of the apostles here. They, they, they've lost Jesus they get him back, and then Jesus says, I'm going to go away again. And they're like, How? what? How? And at one point, Jesus said, it's better that I go away so I can send the Spirit. Why? Well, because Jesus had taken on the form of a person and become a person, and so now he's at a place in time with them, and they loved that. How could it be better to not have God himself with you in person right now? And he says, but the Spirit's going to be with all of you wherever you go. The Spirit's going to dwell inside of you. The Spirit's going to live in you. It's going to be a comforter. It's going to continue to teach you and guide you and convict the world of sin. The Spirit's going to have this broad ministry among you, and I'm going to send the Spirit to you. When we think of the Holy Spirit, we often think of the gifts of the Spirit, right? The spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives. So you know, preaching and leadership and teaching and, and evangelism and service and mercy and giving and so on, and all the gifts of the Spirit. But here in Acts... Jesus talks about the Spirit as being the gift. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a, is a gift to us, not something to be ignored, not something to just kind of leave off to the side, but the Holy Spirit is this incredible gift that is the continuation of God with us. The disciples have to be wondering, where do we go from here? What's now? What's next? And Jesus is saying, I've got something for you. 
In fact, the apostles are going to ask him here, Jesus, is now the time to set up your kingdom? Look at verse 6. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? This is the equivalent of three weeks ago, I'm heading up to Michigan and my kids are in the back of the van going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And what I want to do is either yell at them or throw food at them because that's just my sinful nature. Jesus' response was a little bit more measured. He said, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. You know, next time I'm on a road trip, I just need to try this. Every time my kids ask me, are we there yet? The father alone has those dates and times. They are not for you to know. We'll see how that goes. It might work. It's a very gracious answer. But you know, this is really a very faith-building statement. It's a faith-testing and a faith-building statement. How many of you at some time in your life have gone, God, what's going to happen here? When are you going to resolve this situation for me? When are you going to save me from this crisis? When are you going to bring about this resolution of the problem that I have right now? God, what are you doing right now? What's next? Where do we go from here? And can't you imagine God just saying to you, that's for me to know. I'm going to give you things one step at a time, but I want you to trust me. I'm not going to give you the whole plan. I'm not going to give you what's going to happen a year from now. <laughs> I'm looking out at some faces here in the room who've been through this in the last couple of years. Difficult times where you've questioned, God, where are we going? And you've just had to trust him and trust him and trust him and trust him. And then all of a sudden he comes through. And it's like, oh, wow, God, that was, that was awesome. Really would have been nice to know that a year ago that you were going to work it out this way. But, but see, then you wouldn't have the stronger faith. The testing of our faith produces that endurance and that perseverance. This is a faith-testing statement here. Hey, I know you want to know what's about to happen, but that's not for you to know. The Father knows the time and the date. It's not for you to know. But, but he does give them something. He says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth earth. You will receive, there it is again, the Holy Spirit, the continuation of God with us, God with you in an, in an even new and fresh way, God with you wherever you go, God with you when you split up all over the world. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus could have stopped at, you will be my witnesses everywhere. You'll be my witnesses everywhere. All over the place, you're going to be my witnesses, but he doesn't. He actually gives them four regions, four places. You'll be my witnesses, everyone, Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's almost like four different categories of people that Jesus is saying, you are going to reach on my behalf with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem is very comfortable, very familiar. These are the people that you don't mind talking to at all because they're just like you. They speak the same language. They have the same culture. You get Jerusalem. Judea is similar, but it's a little more broad. It's a little wider. These are people that you totally get along with. You don't see them all the time, but they're in the region. You generally get each other. You generally get the culture. But Samaria, Samaria is that place that we don't talk about. You know, we don't talk about Samaria. We don't, we don't go there. We don't like that. We don't like that place. We don't like those people. Samaria are the people that you don't really get along with. And maybe in the past, you would have called them an enemy. And now Jesus is saying, you're going you're gonna to go tell those people about me. In Samaria, you're going to have unity with Samaritans. It's a big deal. And the ends of the earth, the remotest places that you'd never think of going, that you'd never want to go, some of you are going to go there on behalf of me to be my witnesses with the power of the Holy Spirit behind you. 
you're gonna split up all over the place. You know, some people are called to reach Jerusalem. Some people are called to reach Judea. Some people are called to reach Samaria. And some people are called to the ends of the earth. And it changes throughout time as well. We heard this morning from someone who's called to the ends of the earth. To go somewhere far away to learn a different language. To speak with people in a culture that, that they did not grow up with. But to be witnesses for Jesus there. That all started here at the beginning of Acts. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Jesus did not send us the Holy Spirit so that we could keep him for ourselves. He sent us the Holy Spirit so that we can share the gospel message and the Spirit with others to be his witnesses all over the place. In fact, at one point, Paul says that, that Jesus Christ gives the church different gifts in the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And these are gifts that Jesus Christ gives the church to do a very specific thing. And if you look at what each of those words means, the apostles are, are like the, the messengers. They're kind of the, the, the army rangers. They're the first ones in, the boots on the ground that go in first to sort of get things ready. And you've got prophets that proclaim the word of God and, and you've got evangelists that explain the gospel to people who don't understand it, haven't heard it before. And you've got pastors who care for people and teachers who teach people in the word of God. And these are different individuals that God gives to the church to minister in different ways. Not everyone's supposed to be everything, even though there's an element of, of the Christian life that involves most of those things for each one of us. But it's very interesting what Paul says next. This is Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. Paul says, he gave these to the church to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. Not so that those people could go do everything. Not so the apostles can do all the work of the ministry. Not so that the pastors can do all the work of the ministry or the evangelists. But actually, they're there to equip everybody else. So you've got these experts who are uniquely gifted. And their purpose is to blaze the trail, yes. But then to bring all the other believers with them and involve them in that ministry. This is a community effort that Jesus is setting up. He's building a new foundation for something incredible. Working not through the temple structure, not through the priests, not through the Levites. Not that that was bad, but this is new. A new foundation of Jesus and his spirit at work in the hearts and through people. God's people. Verse 9 says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven the same way you saw him go. I just love that. Why are you standing there? Why are you standing around? You know, sometimes I do think we as Christians have a tendency to just get complacent and just kind of stare and like, wow, it's really cool, you know, to have freedom from my sins and have Jesus risen from the dead and just, oh, heaven's going to be amazing. And I feel like we need those two guys to show up and say, why are you staring into heaven? Jesus wanted you to be in Jerusalem. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem because I've got a gift that's coming to you. Why are you staring into heaven? Get busy. Go do the things he wanted you to do. You know why he wanted them in Jerusalem? Because in just a few days, the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them with power. And they were going to preach. And they were going to speak in tongues. And they were going to do some amazing things. And 3,000 people were going to trust in Christ because of that effort. And the church was going to start right there in Jerusalem. Thousands of people. It's amazing. Luke is writing to help us understand how the church went from a ragtag group of a handful of committed disciples who might seem like freaks in just a few decades, tens of thousands of people all over the known world worshiping Jesus in unity, putting aside their differences, their backgrounds, all the things that would have separated them three days ago. And now they're united as a community. And then today, millions and millions of people around the world 
united in one church with our differences granted, but united in our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is exciting, isn't it? That's an amazing thing. We, we take it for granted, but we shouldn't. And so as we study this book of Acts together, our goal is gonna be to recapture the glory of that early experience, to understand what drove them, to understand the, the unique change that happened in their life, the transformation that happened, to learn from their experiences and be inspired by them, to learn about God and how he wants to interact with people and to just praise God for who he is and what he has done, to see the glory and the majesty of how he worked in a way that I don't think I would have ever chosen. You know, if I were to set out to build the new foundation that Jesus was doing, I would go about it a completely different way. And I think some of the apostles were thinking, all right, when are we gonna get the military together? Like, let's go do this thing. That's not what Jesus had in mind. What he did is so miraculous and so amazing that as we look at it together, I hope we're gonna walk away and just say, wow, God, that is awesome. And give him the praise and the glory that he deserves. I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me right now. Let's just pray. God, we've, we've heard a lot this morning about you and about your church and how you started to set it up and how you've designed us to be empowered by your Holy Spirit and how you want us to share that with others. But God, as we close today, I just want us to remember how awesome and amazing you are. What an incredible God. We wanna praise you for how you came and died for us and how you didn't stay dead, but you rose again. And then you even left and sent us the Holy Spirit so that this thing could multiply and scale around the world so that we could have new life and freedom and healing in you and then get to share that with other people. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have the same unity that the early, early church discovered. Help us to have that freshness of faith where we just trust in you for what's next in our lives, God. And help us to praise you and glorify you for the awesome God that you are. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.